Herbert W. Armstrong preached the good news of the kingdom of God for 55 years of his long and productive life, raising up this modern era of the church of God and the work. Through the efforts of Mr. Armstrong, his wife Loma, and many others who came later, he built the work as we know it in the 20th century. He began broadcasting on radio in 1934 and thundered God's message of a wonderful world tomorrow for over 52 years. In 1947, as the Radio Church of God grew, Mr. Armstrong founded Ambassador College in order to provide a trained ministry to serve the church. As the work and the church grew, hundreds, thousands, and tens of thousands of members and co-workers lent their hands to support the work. In 1955, the door of television began to be opened. At its height, before Mr. Armstrong's death, the World Tomorrow television program was being aired by well over 400 stations weekly around the world. Towards the end of his life, Mr. Armstrong also had personal audiences with presidents, prime ministers, kings and queens from all over this world. The great God truly used Mr. Armstrong in this century to powerfully publish the good news of the kingdom of God, the primary work of the Church of God. After Mr. Armstrong's death, a dispute over the true work of God and doctrines of the Bible occurred in the church. It soon became apparent that once again, a work would have to be revived as in the 1930s. So I do appreciate your being here very much to help inaugurate the global Church of God. And uh, as you know, uh, this is an unusual undertaking, and uh, we are certainly basing our lives on this to a certain degree, and yet we know Mr. Armstrong did the same thing. It takes understanding, it takes faith, it takes courage to do something like this. So I appreciate all of you stepping out in faith and courage very, very much. The purpose of the new organization, the Global Church of God, was to follow in the footsteps of Mr. Armstrong in commitment to true biblical doctrines and a unified effort to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. Mr. Roderick Meredith was one of the very early students of Herbert W. Armstrong. He enrolled in Ambassador College in 1949, which had a total enrollment of 12 students. The Ambassador Yearbook, The Envoy, chronicles his active student life. After his graduation in 1952, Roderick Meredith was one of five evangelists ordained on December 20th of that year. Later, in addition to his ministerial and administrative responsibilities, he presented several World Tomorrow radio programs on behalf of Mr. Armstrong. And greetings, friends. This is Roderick C. Meredith speaking to you once again in the absence of Mr. Armstrong and bringing and you the good friends. news this of the World Tomorrow. This is Roderick C. Meredith with the good news of the World Tomorrow. But first, my friends, what do we find in the news of today's troubled world? Why, my friends, are the United States and Britain fast losing friendship in this world and becoming the most hated nations? Why is God permitting this to come about? The first service of the Global Church of God was held in the home of Mr. and Mrs. Meredith, along with 17 other brethren in December of 1992. Other groups began forming across the country and around the globe. Before office facilities were available, the kitchen table of Don and Sandy Davis in Pasadena, California, served as the mail processing department. Cards, letters, and phone calls poured in, and the church grew. In February 1993, to accommodate a growing full-time staff, the headquarters offices of the Global Church of God moved into a small bungalow-type office building in San Dimas, California, located about an hour east of Los Angeles 
and set against the backdrop of the San Gabriel Mountains. This facility housed the developing editorial, personal correspondence, accounting, data entry, church administration, information services, and mailing departments of the work. Some of the many duties performed here were planning, researching, writing and editing articles for the World Ahead magazine and the Global Church News, designing covers, layouts and illustrations for the magazine, as well as duplicating audio and video sermon tapes, processing incoming mail and contributions, and mailing out magazines, Global Church News and tapes. Often it took the help of volunteers sitting in. The computer staff maintained a system which recorded and accessed the growing mailing list. As more full-time staff was added, more office space was needed. That same month, in February of 93, Mr. Meredith went on radio for the first time. Initially, the World Ahead program was taped at Wood Holly Productions, located in Hollywood, California. But in December, the recording studio was finished at the Church of God offices in San Dimas. And greetings, friends. This is Roderick C. Meredith bringing you special insights on today's news and the good news of the world ahead. This is where the World Ahead radio broadcasts were recorded until the office moved to its present location in San Diego, California. The first issue of the World Ahead magazine was published in September 1993. The printing of the magazine started at 6,000 a month and has grown to 25,000 a month with a circulation of 20,000. The Global Church of God grew as more brethren and ministers came to help in the work. From 19 members in December of 1992, the church attendance has grown to 6,000 in just under three years. As the church has grown, so has the need for more staff. The work in January 1993 consisted of only five headquarters employees. Now there are 47 employees. The headquarters of the church were housed in San Dimas for one year and four months. But eventually the small bungalow type office building was no longer sufficient to support the growing volume of work and needs for staff workspace. The decision was made to move the offices to larger facilities. Moving out of the smoggy L.A. basin was also a prime consideration for sake of the health of the headquarters ministers and staff. An extensive search was undertaken to locate new office space. Many locations were carefully considered. Finally, a Spanish courtyard-style office facility in the rolling hills of northern San Diego was selected for its location, climate, and beauty, price per square foot, and potential room for expansion. The move to this community, called Rancho Bernardo, took place in June of 1994. During the next few years, the Global Church of God produced good fruit and the work grew. Dr. Meredith produced and presented the World Ahead television program, which soon aired on Superstation WGN. But in November 1998, the Global Board was intent on diminishing Dr. Meredith's leadership role and replaced him as presiding evangelist. This great disruption led to the establishment of the Living Church of God. Dr. Meredith gave his first sermon titled, New Beginning, on November 28, 1998. 
Thank you very, very much for coming. It is encouraging to me and encouraging to my wife. She's been a tremendous help in all of this. And certainly Mr. and Mrs. Don Davis have been an awesome help, helping set this hall up, setting to do this. He does virtually everything, you know what I mean? And we appreciate him and many, many of the rest of you. And I better not start down the line beyond that or we will, we will offend someone that we leave out. As Mr. Herbert Armstrong did, we once again have to start over. God bless the establishment and growth of the Living Church of God. Tomorrow's World Television program first aired on January 31st, 1999 on WGN. Today the program airs on more than 200 television stations around the world. On the Sabbath of December 21st, 2002, the Southern California congregations observed the 50th anniversary of Dr. Meredith's ordination as evangelist. He was presented a clock with a commemorative engraving. The occasion also celebrated the 10th anniversary of the Global Living Church of God. Almost eight months ago, we began the process of moving our headquarters 2,400 miles from San Diego, California to here in Charlotte, North Carolina. We appreciate all the prayers and support that you've given us. In this Behind the Move video, we'll be sharing some of the details of that move and introduce you to our new 38,000 square foot office building. Now, I'd like to invite you to see the building. Y'all come right on in. On April 10th, the official grand opening reception was held at the office. Mr. Meredith took time to address the audience, thanking our guests for their help during the relocation process. He also discussed the goals of the work and our future impact upon the community. We're a very small work, so we sound very uh, pretentious, perhaps, having a, a reception and this and that. But I think you will find that in years to come, I don't mean two years, but in the next uh, three to six years, you will hear more of us. And uh, I think eventually you will understand that we have a unique approach. We're going to bring a different type of approach to the work of God. Uh, many sincere people are preaching, but we are preaching what we call restoring apostolic Christianity. We're trying to restore uh, the Christianity of the first century, first century Christianity, what they actually taught and what they actually did. And that seems different. We don't get ideas out of a different book or some book that we've written but directly uh, based on the Bible, the book of Acts. But that's what we're doing, and I think you'll find it's going to be very helpful to the world. And certainly as this world gets more and more in trouble, and as the end of an age seems to be coming, our nation needs help. They do need understanding of what it's all about. And we have a very strong prophetic message as well. So we hope to render a special service to our fellow man here in the United States and around the world because we have foreign offices and foreign representatives uh, in Canada and uh, Great Britain and Europe and New Zealand and Australia, the Philippines and elsewhere and uh, South Africa and other nations as well. And so we certainly hope to have a greater impact all around the world from this building. Let's consider some of the exciting and encouraging statistics that we're seeing in the work of the Living Church of God today. Currently, the Living Church of God has 294 organized churches and video groups around the world. These groups are found in 42 countries 
and served by more than 145 ministers and 241 deacons and deaconesses. We're observing the Feast of Tabernacles at 43 sites in 30 countries. This is truly a worldwide work in church. Christ said to take the gospel to all nations. God has called individuals out of many nations already, and he continues to expand that base according to his will. The Tomorrow's World program right now is being televised on 224 stations around the world. Our best estimates are that 12.8 million households have viewed the program since January of 1999. God is planting spiritual seeds in new people coming along, and he's providing a witness and warning for those who may not be called right now. Co-workers and donors are growing at a very encouraging rate as well. As of July 2007, the number of co-workers has grown by 26% per year for the past eight years, while donors over the same period have grown by 44% per year. Christ commanded that we should pray for more laborers in the harvest, as he states in Matthew 9, verse 38. Thank you, brethren, for your prayers. God is providing for more laborers, and for that we're very grateful. The July-August issue of Tomorrow's World magazine was sent to 326,000 subscribers. That's a 20% increase over last year. Since 1999, 10.8 million magazines have been distributed. The work is using the Internet more and more powerfully. In the first six months of 2007, we averaged 76,793 visitors to our websites each month. This represents a 24.6% increase over the same period last year. To this date, more than 2,000 students from 61 countries have registered in our recently activated online Tomorrow's World Bible Study course. 30% of those registered are from outside the United States. We're very excited about the potential that the Internet will play as we use this tool more and more effectively. Currently, more than 8,000 students from 92 different countries are enrolled in the printed version of the Bible study course. To date, 5,687 students have completed the printed version of the Bible study course. All these missionary efforts have led to a 30% increase in baptisms year to date. We thank God who gives the increase, as it states in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 7. Brethren, we in the living church of God are now moving ahead faster than ever. Christ is guiding us, listen, to lay a foundation. We're simply laying a foundation now for a truly powerful work which will be known over the entire world in a few years. If we do our part, God may allow us, if we surrender to him, to be the primary instruments to reach the world with the message of the soon coming kingdom of God, the laws of God, the way of God, the government of God, and what it's all about. We have that opportunity. We have that privilege. We have that challenge, challenge put before us. We do, and we need to realize that. May God help us all to grasp what is beginning to happen. May he inspire all of us to draw much closer to him, brethren. Only through the living Jesus Christ within us can this work be accomplished with the full power and blessing of Almighty God. I want to thank all of you for your support that you give us at headquarters and for your prayers for me personally. We're truly on a crusade to get this message to the entire world. And time is running out. Thank you for your commitment, your conviction, your dedication to the work the great God has given us to do. We can be thankful to God, brethren, that we still live in a land, a very relative, very good overall, peace and safety. 
And we know we have certain parts of our cities and certain big cities that have more problems than others. But as a whole, we have been very blessed in that. And boy, when you turn on the television and you see what's happening in the Middle East and you see the rioting and the problems out in Afghanistan right now and you see the starvation and the people being beaten and raped and humiliated all through various parts of Africa and people being put down by dictators in Central and South America and elsewhere, we realize we are blessed and we still have the opportunity to preach the truth of God. And so we can be thankful to God, and I hope that we can appreciate that, that privilege that we have. We have a rich heritage. We often need to think of our heritage, and I hope that you will do that. Many of you young people don't think about it. I know it was after my father died, way back in 1963. I got to have him for just over 33 years, and I'm grateful for that until I was 33 years old. But then I wished, I thought again and again, why didn't I ask Daddy what it was like over in France in World War II, in World War I, I mean? Why didn't I ask my grandmother, Elizabeth Cunningham Meredith, how it was coming down from northern Missouri or Indiana originally in a covered wagon into Oklahoma when it was still Indian Territory? Why didn't I ask D? I was just a kid. I just wanted to have fun, and I didn't think about where have I been? Where are we going? What's life all about? And I wish I'd done that, but we need to think about our heritage and think about why we're here and what's really going on. As you turn back to the very beginning of our heritage, let's turn to Genesis chapter 3, if you would, and I'll give you a little bit of this. Genesis chapter 3, and here it says, I'm sorry, Genesis 1. I don't know why I said 3. This is an extra scripture I'm throwing in here. <laughs> Genesis 1, verse 26, after creating, of course, the heavens, the earth, the trees, everything, the animals. Then God said, Genesis 1, verse 26, let us, God and the Word, the one called the Logos, the spokesman, the two beings in the family of God, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion. And from the beginning, God wanted us to have dominion, brethren. And so that's the very beginning of what God had in mind. And that's our ultimate future. We're made in His image. We're made to be His full sons. And He's working with us. He's rebuking and chastening each son He loves. He's trying us. He's testing us. He is fashioning and molding us to see if we really want to fulfill the purpose for which we're created, the purpose for which we were called, the purpose for which we have been blessed. And we all need to think about that. That's our ultimate goal and our ultimate heritage being made directly by God. And so we need to constantly think about where have we come from and where are we going and why are we here. As God worked out His purpose among men, He called many people. One of the key ones He called early on was Abraham, called the father of the faithful. And Abraham had to have faith and courage. He had to leave everything he had ever known and go out from Ur of the Chaldees into a land he'd never seen before and trust in the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob as he became later on and walk with God and do what God said. And he did. And he became the father of the faithful. That's interesting. The very first thing God says about a man like that is his faithful. That's something I'll be talking about a little bit as we go along. That's so important. So important. And as I look back, I'll digress once in a while. I'm kind of a an emotional state at this particular time. It's a happy time. It's a special time. And I'll digress and tell some stories. But one of the main things I remember about Mr. Herbert Armstrong is how faithful he was. That's something that struck me, his faith and courage that he had. He made mistakes. 
He got upset sometimes and would yell at all kinds of people around him, or he did this and that very emotionally. He had an artistic temperament. A lot of you never saw that side of his, but many of us did. But he had faith and courage in a remarkable way. And Abraham was faithful and did what God said. And so God has honored that now throughout this age since Abraham's time, and he will honor that, of course, throughout eternity. Then, of course, he called later on Moses, who had been reared among the princes of Egypt and knew the wisdom of the Egyptians, highly trained and perhaps as a general in the Pharaoh's army, as the legend goes, but then was willing to give all that up and forsake the riches of Egypt for Christ. And the word in the New Testament mentions Christ, as you know, because Christ was that rock of the Old Testament. The one who became Jesus Christ was the God of Israel. And the world doesn't like to admit that because if the Protestants admitted Christ was the God of Israel, then they would have to admit that Christ is the one who gave the Ten Commandments. Christ is the one who gave the Holy Days. Christ is the one who did this and did that. So they don't like to emphasize that very much. That's very much deep. And once in a while they sort of indirectly admit it, but boy, they sure don't make very much of it because that would lead to the logical conclusion to obey Christ and to obey His laws. But at any rate, Moses came along and God used him to raise up what we find was called the church in the wilderness. Back in Acts chapter 7 and verse 38, this is he who was in the congregation, or as the King James has it, the church in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, the one who received uh, the living oracles to give to us, whom our fathers would not obey. God's people always seem to want to turn aside. And you saw some pictures kind of hit me in this behind the work film. Some of the people have turned aside. When Jesus Christ was here, you see, no one would turn aside from him because he was perfect. No, you read back in John 6, that, or no, is it John 16, I think. I'm sorry, Matthew, I'm hurrying along here too much. I think that later on it says, many turned aside, not a few, but many, and walked no more with him. But when you look up that scripture, you'll see where many turned aside, even from Jesus Christ. And uh, that's uh, something we have to really understand, how easy that is. Some of you may turn aside later, even as these things get going faster and faster and faster over the next five to ten years in prophecy, as the nation goes down, the dollar goes down, the the drought, the famine, the disease epidemic, Europe gets stronger. Well, nothing's ever happening. Everything's just the same. Oh, really? Oh, really? How dare we say that? These things are really changing, and they're very exciting according to the specific pattern that God showed Mr. Armstrong. And it is happening in front of our very eyes. And we need to be excited by it. No other church understands this except those people that came or descended from Mr. Armstrong and learned it from him. So we are grateful for that understanding. God used Moses, in a sense, as a human to found the church, the church in the wilderness, and gave them the basic way of God, the Sabbath, the commandments, that Christ came along, of course, and showed the physical rituals and sacrifices were not needed. He was the sacrifice and magnified the law. He didn't do away with the law. He magnified it. He said a man is not only not to commit adultery, he's not to look on a woman to lust after her. That makes that law all the more binding. And we can all figure that out, I hope. He didn't do away with it. He made it all the more binding. But again, we're one of the very few people on this earth who understand that. So Moses came along, and of course then we had the apostles come along. And Jesus Christ came along first, of course, and started the church. And after him, the apostles carried on. Turn back to Matthew 16, if you would, and let's notice here what happened with Jesus Christ and how God used him in the way he did. Turn to Matthew chapter 16, brethren. 
Matthew chapter 16, and beginning when uh, he said, Who do you say that I am? People were saying he was very proper, one of the prophets. And Matthew 16, verse 16, Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. That understanding came directly from God. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and we know that Greek word here, and all the commentaries acknowledge that. It's a small word, Petros, meaning a small stone. You're a small stone. And on this rock, P-E-T-R-A, meaning a massive rock or foundation stone or rock cliff, on this rock I will build my church. Christ doesn't have a whole bunch of churches, some of them keeping the Sabbath and some not and having all kinds of contradictory ideas. He has a church. I will build my church and the gates of Hades, the grave, will not prevail against it. And I will give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Notice this. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Those who are truly doing God's work and guided by God's Spirit had the authority to make binding decisions. And God gave them that. We're training to be kings and priests in tomorrow's world. That's why we're called today. And that's so important to learn that kind of judgment and be able to make those kind of decisions. So Christ came along and started the church. Then the apostles came and enlarged on that. And as you will see here in Ephesians chapter 2, turning to Ephesians chapter 2 and beginning in verse 19, the apostle Paul told the Ephesians who were mainly Gentiles, of course, Greeks, he said, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation. Here's our foundation, not Martin Luther, not John Wesley. I grew up as a Methodist, but he's not part of the foundation. Here's the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So the true church of God is built on that foundation. We know that Christ always taught the commandments. He said in Matthew 19, 17, if you would enter into life, keep the commandments. The apostles always taught the commandments as a way of life. And we know that and can explain that over and over. Later, after the apostles were gone, a dark age set in. And the Roman Catholic Church came up and the true church was scattered and persecuted. And they were called by all kinds of names. One of those names was the Policians. And they came along in Asia Minor. And then we had the Petrobusians. And then we had the Albigensians. And then we had the Waldensians. And a lot of you have heard the term Waldenses. We have a Walden sitter right over here, a hundred miles or so over west of us. And Dr. Winnale and my wife and I stopped by that, that old museum some time back. Peter Waldo. And the every indication is that many of them, not all of them, but many of them did keep the Sabbath and the 14th day Passover, and they called themselves the Church of God. There was always a remnant of that group down through history, always and never stamped out. The gates of the grave would never prevail against God's church. And so we had that. Then after that group, we had, of course, people that migrated on west into northwestern Europe and the British Isles. And from the British Isles, we know in history that a man named Stephen Mumford, M-U-M-F-O-R-D, Stephen Mumford brought the Sabbath here to Rhode Island. And some of you have seen, as I have seen, Dr. Winnale and many of us have seen the original Sabbatarian church there in Rhode Island, and a number of the Sabbatarian ministers are lifted. I won't get to mention everybody's name in this thing, of course, but that was a very significant thing. And the church of God was brought from the old world to the new world. Then as you go along through the 17, 18, 1900s, you find quite a number of names that I don't start. One of the outstanding ones was named 
Jacob Brinkerhoff. And he was an outstanding writer and editor among the Seventh-day Church of God people. But they kept the Sabbath day. They knew about the kingdom of God on earth. And when Mr. Armstrong was later called, he said, I didn't pull all of this out of the sky. And I'd like you young people to think about this too. Some of you think, well, how do we get all this? And this just said, no, it's not just some idea that we cooked up in the last 50 or 70 years. This is a matter of history. There have been thousands of people, and going back to the time of the apostles, tens of thousands, no doubt hundreds of thousands of people who kept the Sabbath day and the holy days of God. It's a matter of history. And Mr. John O'Gwen wrote a fine booklet talking about a lot of that, but we may write later other things to enlarge on that. He didn't have time and didn't want to write a whole book. He wrote our wonderful booklet on the United States and British Empire and prophecy. But uh, I asked him to make that short and not too long, because if you make it too long and too involved, today people won't read it. You know that they have a Reader's Digest mentality. So Dr. O'Neill and others are talking about adding a big supplement that we can do someday. And if Mr. Gwynn were here, he would be glad to have us do that and help us do it, of course. But make to people who want to go deeper. Lots of information is there proving these things. It's a matter of history. The church of God came right down through these people that are mentioned in history. And the Seventh-day Church of God. Then we had a man named Andrew Duggar who was a leading man among the Seventh-day Church of God people, and through him and a number of other men in his time in the 1920s and early 1930s, why a man came among them named Herbert W. Armstrong, who had been a businessman, advertising man from the state of Iowa, and had his office in the Loop in Chicago, and dealt with many multimillionaire businessmen and big bankers and so on, had a lot of business experience. But as you know, he tells in his autobiography how God knocked him down, took it all away, and somehow his wife challenged him. And she, she, she said, if you can prove me wrong, Herbert, I'll change. And he set out to prove her wrong that the Sabbath was not on Sunday, but was on Saturday. And he could not do that. And in that study, that intensive study, and that's one thing about Mr. Armstrong that was remarkable, too, that very few of us have. I've seen him and watched him as he put things together. He kept going deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper, and he just like a bulldog with a bone. He wouldn't let it go. Some of you older members will remember Mr. and Mrs. Apartine and Mrs. Mr. and Mrs. Davis and others who were way back there in the 50s or 60s. He got on uh, oh, all kinds of things. He got on the spirit in man. He got on the lost century, and, uh, and uh, he got on uh, various things, finally the two trees. And I know some of the students for a while said, oh, here comes see my son Mike Smiley. Oh, the two trees, the two trees. They got tired of hearing about the two trees. <laughs> Did you get tired of hearing about the two trees? But he went on and on. He wouldn't let it go. He kept turning it over in his mind. And he would have a sense of going deeper until he fully, fully understood it. And the brethren whose minds were open, they would really understand it then, prove thoroughly from the Bible, history, and everything else. But God used that man because of those tremendous abilities he had. And he had a lot of insight, of course. It didn't just take him a long time to catch on. It was, he was often the first one to come on to something new. Beside the basic knowledge the church of God gave him of the Sabbath and the, uh, the fact the kingdom was to be on earth based on God's law and all those things, which he learned from them and said freely he didn't learn all that. Heaven, hell, immortality of the soul, unclean meats, the seventh-day church of God. But he un- came to understand of course, our national identity, that we were the peoples of Israel. There had been the British Israel World Federation had that, but they had all kinds of crazy stuff connected with it. 
It didn't make sense at all. They tried to say the British Empire was the kingdom of God. And they had the Great Pyramid, and they'd measure so many inches of the Great Pyramid, and seven inches meant so much time left, or all kinds of stuff that didn't have anything to do with anything, and could easily, easily be proved wrong. He let all that stuff go and got to the foundation by analysis and thoughtful prayer and made sense of the basic truth that is in the Bible. And then, of course, I was right in the graduate class in the spring of 1953. I graduated the previous spring from ambassador. And he said, fellas, something is coming to me, and it seems like heresy. And I don't want to preach heresy. And he began to explain that in the Bible, he began to think about the fact that God shows that every creature reproduces after his kind. And he said, God tells us that we are made in the image of God. And he said, is God reproducing after his kind? He says, that sounds blasphemous, doesn't it? And some of us thought, well, it sort of does. And he said, and if any of you can disprove me, please do it. He challenged us to. And I know I went to my Bible and I was just introducing the idea of the Epistles of Paul class to be taught that following autumn. And I went through the Epistles of Paul in depth. And the more I read, the more I thought, wow, statement after statement shows that is the truth. And Ken Herman was this German primo walkie, good mind analysis, and he tried to disprove it. But he came, Dr. Herman Hay, of course, our dean of the, of the scholars. And, of course, he ended up believing it. All of us did. It made sense. It was the truth of God. One of the most wonderful... It was not anything to do with the uh, Mormon idea, by the way. He did not get that from the Mormons. I sat there as he was thinking it through from that point of view of the Bible. And the Mormons had the idea, you're already God, some kind of a God type being some outer planet. And you migrate, transmigrate through the human flesh and have more and then go out again and have your kingdom. And the more wives and the more children you have, the bigger kingdom you'll have. A bunch of crazy stuff that is not in the Bible at all. But Mr. Armstrong, again, went to the basic truth. And made it clear. So God did use him to give us wonderful, really wonderful understandings. He was ordained by the historical church of God. And most of you brethren know, and again, you young people, think about it. What is God's church called in the Bible? Twelve times in the New Testament. The church of God at Corinth. The church of God. The church of God. The church of God. That is the name of God's church in the New Testament over and over. He was ordained by the Sabbath-keeping, commandment-keeping, church of God, a weak church, as God describes in Revelation 3, verses 1 to 6. He said, I know you have the name of God, but you're dead. He said, strengthen the things that are about to die. <laughs> they, he showed there's something almost ill-living, but not quite. They were that way. I came among them later on, and he asked us to attend one, the time, one summer when we were working up in the woods in Oregon. They were very friendly people, but they just talked about the weather. and Oh, Joe, how's the crops doing? And that's all they could talk about. They had no concept of a big work, prophecy, the big picture, nothing. They weren't growing any more than their ancestors had 100 or 200 years before. You could see that very clearly. Mr. Armstrong came among them, though, and learned some basic things from them and added much. But they ordained him. And part of his ordination certificate, again, for those of you who haven't read it in the autobiography, it's printed right there, photographed. He was ordained a minister and apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, we don't think that he was an apostle because they said so. They used apostle in the general sense. You know, apostle means one cent. We think that because God did use him in a remarkable way to found an entire era of the church and all the other remarkable things he did. But nevertheless, he was ordained, as he said over and over, about Pentecost sometime in late May or June, about Pentecost, 1931. So he had a wonderful 54 and a half years in the ministry as an ordained minister of Jesus Christ. 
And God used him more powerfully than any other man that we know of for hundreds of years. And we're very grateful for the truth that God gave through him. I had the privilege of being one of the pioneer students, as you've heard. I want to dwell on that, but maybe it's helpful for you on this special occasion to think about it. Why are you here? Why am I here? Am I bigger? No. Am I better? No. Am I more handsome? No, certainly not that. <laughs> I don't begin to have the looks and the big voice and personality that Mr. Armstrong and Ted had, but I was one of the first ones to come to Ambassador College, and I spent thousands, I'm not exaggerating, before God, thousands of hours with Mr. Armstrong. Part of it was because I became a good friend of Dick Armstrong, and I got to go over to their house quite often with Dick uh, way back when I was a student, you know, sophomore, junior, senior in college, and we ate a lot of times if they were wanting a snack, or I got there for breakfast once or twice, and then even once or twice for lunch. We ate Armstrong Special. They called it Armstrong Special. It was cornflakes, and they ate a lot of cornflakes. <laughs> Mrs. Armstrong's mother died just after she was born, and she never learned to cook and very much, and so they ate a lot of, they ate out a lot, and they also ate a lot of Armstrong Special. But I got to be with them so many occasions like that, plus traveling and staying in the same hotel suite or a few times the same hotel room, just Mr. Armstrong and me. It was taught by him. And I'm the only one left, the only one left of the original five evangelists ordained by Mr. Armstrong. So from a historical point of view, I could die tomorrow. I could die during this sermon. I remember my son Jim sitting over here one time in L.A. He was kind of acting up. But kind of joking, but he, he, what he said was true. He, we were talking about our health or something, and, and he said to be in front of some other men there, said, I know how you want to die, Dad. You want to be saying, brethren, repent! And then I'd fall over right there. <laughs> I said, that's right. <laughs> I want to die doing the work, and that's the way to go, that's the way to go. So we, I have many men around helping. I'll talk a little bit more about them uh, as we go along. A wonderful team. And some of them may take over, and some of the older men may to- take over if something happened, like Mr. Ames or Dr. Winnell. But if time goes on long enough, then Christ may show that some of the younger men would come along and be better. I don't know. I don't have some favorite. I'm just asking God's guidance in my life and everything else. But maybe I'm here because of the training I had, and we do in the living church of God have certain things that are a little different. They say all these groups were all the same. We're all the same. No, we're not all the same. As we say, no other, no other product can claim that or whatever. No other church of God can say their evangelist was trained directly by Mr. Armstrong as one of the first five still living and learn and help build the work under him. I'm not bragging, but that's been my life. I came as a 19-year-old boy. And the plain truth is, you know, your older brethren came out, what, four to six times a year or less. The Good News magazine didn't come out at all for 13 years, as Mr. Armstrong said. And Herman and Hay and I were used to help get the magazines coming out regularly. And it was the two of us. I don't apologize. I did do that. So I helped. as part of my life. I helped organize the baptizing tours after the one I went and decided who would go out and where they'd go. I was the first, one of the first directors of the ministry and helped raise up more churches and have more campaigns and so on because God was allowing me to serve in that way, helping Mr. Armstrong from the beginning, from the college years at least, to build the work. So God is letting me carry on because of that. And I'm very grateful. That's encouraging, but it's very humbling. I could blow it. I know that. Unto whom much is given, of him much is required. And I don't even begin to start to commence to be like the Apostle Paul or Peter or James or John or like Jesus Christ. And when I compare myself with them, I realize, man, I make so many mistakes. What's wrong with me? 
Well, what's wrong with me is what's wrong with you, of course, human nature. <laughs> but we, we all have human nature. But anyway, we do have certain special things in this church. And I think that's one reason we have our fire in the belly and we're going to go ahead and finish the work. Because many of us, Mr. Aparty and I, were helping Mr. Armstrong from way back in the 50s. And then other men like Mr. Ames and Dr. O'Neill came along in the 60s. And we've been helping Mr. Armstrong a long, long time and helping do this work. So we're very grateful for that opportunity. So we want to be sure that uh, God wants us to do the work and do it the way God wants us to do. We are the Philadelphia remnant, brethren. And most of you know, we deeply feel, if you study history and analyze, nearly everyone who thinks about it can see that God used Mr. Armstrong to raise up what you call the Philadelphia era of God's church. As it's described in Revelation 3, the church that went through the open doors and did a big work and so on. We're the ones carrying on that we're a part of that group doing that work and we're keeping right on doing that work. Others have more social clubs and activities and things, but they're not doing the work to the same degree. That does make us better humanly, but we do have that opportunity and that understanding that perhaps they don't understand. Back in uh, Revelation 3, let's notice a little bit about that. Revelation chapter 3 and here you find the angel to the church of Sardis, verse 1. These things says he that has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you're alive, but you're dead. They call themselves the church of God, but they're dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. So they were very, very weak. And I've been among them and could talk about it. Nice folks, just nice country people, but not doing anything. Then verse 7, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, the next era the next or the final era, right? These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David. And I explained to you in a sermon a few months ago, the key of David has everything to do with church government. That's the key thing about David. It wasn't just the, 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 the chair, the big rock under the chair, Jacob's pillar stone. That's a very small part of it. But the really big thing, when you understand it, that's a little thing we've grown into, but we do understand that. And we can prove it to you. And I think I did in that sermon if you were listening carefully and taking notes. What was David noted for? Being the king that was the primary king reflecting Jesus Christ. Literally representing Jesus Christ in type. And all the time later, it tells you about, you know, Jehoiakim, or not Jehoiakim, but uh, about uh, the, the Hezekiah and Jehoshaphat is trying to say, all these wonderful words, <laughs> and the righteous kings that said they were loyal like their father David. And you find some bad king, Ahab, or others that it says they were disloyal. Their heart was not right with God as their father David's had been. Constantly you'll find David is used as the benchmark, the reference point. He was the king that represented Christ. And, of course, he is the one, you read in Ezekiel 37 in several places, that is going to be over all 12 tribes of Israel under Christ in tomorrow's world, in the resurrection, in a few years. We're going to get to know King David in person. It's going to be exciting. These things are real, and we need to understand that. But this is a church that understands church government, so we could keep together, have unity, move forward as a team, and do the work of God. And he says, I know your works, and see, I've set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. And throughout the New Testament, you find a door was open to this city or that city or region, meaning an opening, a, a, an opportunity like preaching on radio or television or printing, an open door, a way to go through and preach the truth. 
And so God set the huge open door to Mr. Armstrong of radio and the printing press long before there was any television. And some few of you older people remember the television hasn't had the same effect even in recent times because back then there wasn't any television and there weren't as many, many radio stations for a long time and there weren't as many powerful preachers on radio. And night after night, all through the Midwest and vast sections of the South, Mr. Armstrong's voice came in like a father figure and greetings, friends. This is Herbert W. Armstrong and so on. I remember Raymond Manair and I were on a baptizing tour in uh, northern Arkansas one time. And while we were in the people's homes, after we baptized them laying on hands, a huge southern thunderstorm came along. And the rain just blistered down. And we kept waiting for it to let up. It never let up. We thought, well, we can't stay here all night. And also, they didn't invite us to, although perhaps they would have. I didn't ask. But anyway, we thought we got to get on down the road. We had an appointment at 8.30 the next morning down in Russellville or Little Rock somewhere at the U.S. Post Office where we'd always meet people. And us young guys at 21 years of age would show up at a big uh, 1948 Chrysler. And, of course, they always knew who we were. You're the boys from the college, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, we are. <laughs> and then we'd talk to them about baptism. But we were driving down this mud road. And we didn't get but a couple of miles, and all of a sudden it just got wetter and wetter, and the, the, the tires got deeper and deeper in the mud, and finally it just stalled. And I was driving that time, but Raymond and I took turns driving. But So he got out, and being a country boy, he took off his uh, his shoes. He thought he'd get better traction in his bare feet. <laughs> he was from Arkansas. I thought, well, he knows what he's doing. But uh, he cut his foot on a rock and was bleeding, so he couldn't. So then I had him drive and gun the car, and I got out in my shoes, and we couldn't do a thing. We were just sitting there thinking, what do we do? Finally, I said, well, Raymond, your foot's bleeding. I'll go out. So I got outside and wandered about a quarter of a mile down the road. And finally, I saw a little light, a little trickle of a light, flicker of a light coming through a curtain way off to one side. So I cut off the road and uh, through a field, an open field. And all of a sudden, some lightning went like that distance. And I realized I was right in the middle of a herd of cows. And some of them jumped up. And I thought, ooh, I hope one of them is not a bull. <laughs> I really did. I was concerned. I prayed silently, stood there. Then I started moving toward the light. And I got to this guy's house about 10.30 at night. And I banged on the door. And nothing happened. And I banged. I said, we need help or something. And this, oh, this real gruff voice came out. Great big guy, six one or 2, and big husky farmer. Said, what are you doing this time of night here or something? I said, well, my friend and I are here on a tour all the way from California. And he said, what are you doing back here? And I said, well, uh, uh, well, I kind of thought we were ministerial students and we're on a baptizing tour. And he says, where are you from? Pasadena, California. Are you with Ambassador College? Yeah, yeah. We hoped he was happy to know about that. <laughs> Some of them weren't. <laughs> he said, oh, he said, I listen to Mr. Armstrong almost every night. Wait a minute, I'll get the truck. So he got this great big four-wheel something truck and a crane and pulled us out, pulled us all the way into town, got us right to a motel where we could pull in, and so on. Way out in the middle of northern Arkansas, people all over were hearing Mr. Armstrong. It was amazing. I could tell you many more stories like that, but that was encouraging, something I've never forgotten. So he was used by God to reach all those people, and God let him go through the open doors. He said, you have a little strength even at our peak, as you know, we had just 150,000 people. That, you know, that's tiny. I mean, the Catholic Church has over 1 billion people, so we were tiny. But at least we had a little bit of numbers and were doing a work. And have kept my word. And brethren, please remember that. When people got mad at Mr. Armstrong, he'd often say, Brethren, I've made mistakes. Herbert Armstrong has made dozens of mistakes. But he said, I have tried to be faithful to God's word. And no one could argue with that because he was. He was faithful to God's word, and that kept the church that way, and have not denied my name. 
God's name is God's authority. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they're Jews, these false Christians who claim to be spiritual Jews and are not but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. I'm going to make them wake up someday. And as you know, in the millennium and the great white throne judgment, they will meet some of you and you will get an opportunity to teach some of them, maybe even people that have made fun of you and me from the world. Because you have kept my command to persevere. Yes, we learned the truth through Mr. Armstrong and the church at that time, and some of you younger ones are running it from us now. If you persevere and don't give up and quit, I also will keep you from the hour of trial. There is a tremendous hour of trial that's coming. And please don't ever put your head in the sand and act like it's not happening. It's going to happen. It is beginning to happen. The hour of trial which will come upon the whole world, this has got to be the great tribulation, to test. It's a test to those on the earth. So we want to understand that, and I hope we can. So God is telling us to remain faithful to His truth, to His way, and I hope that all of you will do that. I've been doing it to a degree for 58 years. I was baptized about a week ago, 58 years ago, about 58 years and a week ago, whatever it was. I think it was December 19th, 1949, but I can't remember the exact date. But I could still fall away. I could. I know that. You could still fall away. Any one of us could. We all have human nature. We've got to fight our human nature. Brethren, I am very grateful we've been able to carry on thus far. And I'm very grateful for the fine, loyal team that Christ has given to assist us in this work. As you know, we have outstanding men, and I can't begin to name all the ministers, whatever it was, 147 listed or something, but we have a fine headquarters team that I do want to honor. Mr. Dick Ames is perhaps the longest-serving one at headquarters, or one of the longest at this point in time, and he does a magnificent job on the telecast. And because he has that wonderful radio voice that you heard in way of presentation, he brings even more responses than I do. I'll just say that very openly. There's responses from the television program. And I may write more articles and do more things, but he has a lot of other strengths that I don't have. He's been as helpful, as loyal, as faithful, as humble, as steady as he could possibly be. And I'm very grateful for him and thank God for him and ask you all to pray for him. We have Mr. D. Barapardian, who also came with me about the same time in the Global Church of God and has been very steady and very faithful and assisting Mr. Carl McNair and running church administration way back at the beginning, and now Dr. Winnale assisting all of us in many ways in the ministry, helping with the whole church administration, and certainly the French work as well. And has been kind of an outstanding person, having been enough of an older man that he's looked to as a, a grandfather figure who's hung in there and been faithful. Dr. Winnale has been with us for many years. And I'm very grateful that he's been so helpful and so loyal and so dedicated. And I kind of compare him and Carl Manair because others kind of bombed out along the way in that job. They were the two faithful ones. And Carl Manair had a kind of a, a wonderful uh, Southern uh, personality and uh, uh, humor and insight and uh, a, a dogged determination that was outstanding. And he was used by God. And no one else could have done what he did, frankly, in helping put the church administration together at that point in time because he'd been in the ministry a lot longer than Dr. Winnell or the others who'd been with us. And I always will honor him. I married his older sister, as you know, my first wife who died back in, back in 1976. But he was wonderful. And I don't know. There's some things I don't understand. When Dick Armstrong died, I never understood why 
he died. I later understood partially, but not fully. I can't know. I'm not God. But Mr. McNair was wonderful, and Mr. Winnale is too. And he has strengths that Mr. McNair did not have, strengths that I don't have. He's more of a historian, more of a big-picture man, and he seems also to get all these programs going, the, the Christian leadership program, the advanced leadership or ministerial training program that we're getting started, helping to get started, the Living University, and all of these things that he's been involved in, and getting these regional uh, conferences going more regularly than anyone, just one program after another. I guess you'd say he's the program man, <laughs> but he's done it, and it's helping the work to grow, and it will b- produce rich fruit as it goes on. So I thank God for him and pray for him as well uh, continually. Our other leading man here on the headquarters team, as I say, we have many others all over, but it's Mr. Davy Crockett. And he came with us the very first service back in January the 2nd, 1993. And uh, I saw him sitting somewhere. I guess he's gone. Oh, there he is. And uh, But anyway, he stuck with us all the way through and was in the had his own insurance business, so then they were bought out by a bigger company who gave him a five-year contract and, and more money. But then they offered him more time, but he wanted to come in the ministry. And I said, Davey, do you want to take a 75% salary cut? I said, that's fine. Or he said, that's fine. <laughs> and he did. And, uh, you know, you come down from whatever it was to 45000 I guess. He started something near 45 or six. And most of our ministers don't make a whole lot of money. A lot of you folks make more than they do. A lot of you think the ministers are all rich. They're not. We wear nice suits and we have lease cars. But one of the business guys was telling me years ago, he said that a lot of the brethren think the evangelists are all rich. And he knew several of us. He was in the business office. And he said, you guys are not rich. Most of you drive lease cars and you have a house rented to you by the college that looks big and expensive, but you don't even own your house and you don't own anything. How much do you have in the bank? And I said, well, five or seven thousand dollars. Oh, yeah. I said, a lot of the brethren have a lot more than that in the bank and they have twenty or fifty thousand dollars equity in their homes and you have nothing. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And uh, so anyway, uh, Mr. Crockett came and he's done a wonderful job here as our business manager and director of public relations, office manager, and helping with a lot of the programs that we have here at headquarters. And we appreciate that and thank God for him. And then I thank God for all of our fine ministry. And I better start, name, start naming them all over the world or I'll forget someone, you know, but we do have a wonderful ministry and I do appreciate them nearly every morning. And my prayers thank God for them. Name some of them by name. One I want to name especially today, however, that has been such a fine help from the beginning is Mr. Don Davis. <laughs> and uh, he's sitting back there, and uh, he's been a help from the very beginning. Some of you saw his picture. He and his wife helped get the, the uh, uh, mailing department started from the beginning. He was the office manager from the beginning. And then when someone else came to be the business manager who had a CPA, he said, well, the first team has arrived. And whenever someone came along, he'd just graciously step aside and do whatever needed to be done. He's always there, find a need and fill it. And he's helped me even today with some things. He just does things all the time. And his wife was with us, as you see, right back at the beginning of the Global Church of God, helping open the mail, bank the money, get things going. And I do thank God for them very much and thank them. From the very beginning, as I said, we had Mr. David Crockett there. The very first Sabbath, my son Michael uh, flew through Dallas, and I think that's where they met. And then they flew out together to Pasadena and where we were living at the time, actually a place called Glendora, uh, suburb of Pasadena. And uh, they were right there for the very first service. So Mr. Crockett went right back 
to Little Rock, and with the help of Dr. Fall, they started, uh, I guess, the first church outside of headquarters in Little Rock, Arkansas. And that was from the beginning. It was the number three. Anyway, Mike, uh, number two. And then my son Mike went right back and helped start the church in Atlanta, Georgia. And uh, I appreciate that so much. He had people meet him right in his house, and he was a pioneer in that way as well. So I'm very grateful for all of the people, and I'm very grateful for all the ministers, and I'm very grateful for all the leaders, and I'm very grateful for all their wives, because my wife has been with me from the very beginning, before Global ever started. She typed out the first article. She typed out all the first booklets. She got no salary. She was raising two young boys. And you see the old booklet on what is a true Christian and what is the true gospel and the booklet we have on your ultimate destiny and so on. She typed all that out herself and many, many hundreds of other things in helping build this work. So I'm very grateful for her and thank God for her regularly. And I thank God for the other wives. And I could mention, of course, Mr. Crockett's wife and Mr. Davis' wife and Mr. Ames' wife and... Uh, and uh, Mr. Apartian's wife, the other fine wives, but without going further because we'd, we'd have a hundred and some odd people to mention. But we are grateful. We're extremely grateful uh, for what Christ has done. But brethren, we must never forget, as time goes on, we must never forget the sacrifice and service of men like Carl McNair and John O'Gwen and many others who gave their lives in this work. Some of them died right in Christ's service, as you know. They gave their lives. And I can't name all of them because several elders, and I may forget somebody. Randy Gregory was a remarkable one because he, of course, was killed like a martyr right up in that Milwaukee tragedy and those brethren up there. So we want to realize you sometimes give your life for God just sitting in church. You sometimes will give your life for God if you're sent off on a baptizing tour. Dick Armstrong lost his life because he was on a baptizing tour. And uh, he was not doing the driving. There's nothing wrong done. It was a strange accident that God permitted for whatever reason. So these things do happen, and we have to understand. But we know that God is in charge, and he's going to work these things out. Back in Isaiah 57, if you'd like to turn there, in Isaiah 57, brethren, and uh, verse 1, beginning, God says through Isaiah, The righteous perishes, and no man takes it to heart. Merciful men are taken away, while no one considers that the righteous is taken away from, if you have a margin, and I've checked it in the Hebrew, the face of evil. The face of evil. And brethren, we are now entering into that time within the next 5 to 15 years or less, but when we will see the face of evil as we have never seen it before. And I don't want to dwell on that, but brethren, if we don't let you understand, you'll think, how could these things be? But they're going to begin to happen soon. Not just the drought, but the persecution and the martyrdom of God's true people and everything else. We've got to be brave. We've got to be loyal. We've got to have courage. You young men, some of you think, well, we're just in church and daddy's religion. Well, when I was 14 and a half years old, I ran away from home. I ran away. I meant it. I wanted to join the United States Marines. We were being attacked, and I was going to lie, and I wasn't in the church, of course, a Methodist, but I was going to get in the Marines. I was a big boy for my age, and I thought I could bluff my way in, but it didn't work, and I and my friend got sent back home. But I meant it. I wanted to join the Marines and fight for the United States. 
When the Star Spangled Banner sounded, you know, or played, boy, we stood up, and I had chills go up and down my spine. And now you see these sports teams, you know, and some of the guys will be slouching around and chewing gum or, you know, not paying attention. We didn't do that back then. Our nation was under attack. And brethren, the church of God is going to be under attack in the next several years. And we've got to be real men and real women of faith and courage and carry on this work. And some of you younger men may have your name written in the rolls of the honored ones of God Almighty throughout all eternity if you'll have the courage and the faith and be willing to really study and not just carelessly read, but to study and get the understanding to stand up for the truth of God, the truth of the purpose of human existence, the truth of the real Jesus Christ of the Bible. And I hope we can do that. We've got to do that. You older people too, I'm just appealing to the young people because a lot of times they just take this for granted. You know, this is just dad and mother's religion. What is this? You're going to see this work have an impact and you're going to see this work bring persecution. Not that we're looking for it, but if we preach the truth, God tells us over and over, it will come. So please do not be shocked. We've had a lot of people give their lives. And you read the book of Hebrews and Hebrews 11 and you see the, the, the role of martyrs there, so to speak, and how many people gave their lives for God. We're soon going to enter the time of evil, the face of evil, and you'll understand later on. Back in Mark, I mean Romans, if you would, I want to turn at this time to Romans, brethren. This is Romans chapter 13, Romans chapter 13, and I want to begin reading at this point at verse 10. The Apostle Paul said, Love does no harm to a neighbor, Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. You're to keep God's law and you're to show love. That's the basis of everything. And love God, first of all, with all your heart and mind and being. Of course, God tells you that is the first and great commandment. And the second is to love your neighbor. And do this, knowing the time that it now it is high time to awake. Even then, 2,000 years ago, Paul said it's time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed Yes, it is. Now, I know that we hope the work would come to an end. Us older folks back in 1972, and Mr. Armstrong indicated it might. And I remind you again, not bragging, but I want the younger people to understand this. Did anyone know any better? Yes, several of us did. And I was one of those. And I got permission for Mr. Armstrong to send out a letter to the entire ministry over the entire earth listing five reasons, five reasons, and I explained each one, why we would probably have more time beyond 1972. I did that. And that letter went all over. And I gave them suggestions that they might use those points in preaching and warning the brethren. This letter was sent out in 1969, three years ahead of time. So it isn't that the brethren didn't know any better they did, but we hoped it might because of 19-year cycles and so on that did not work out. So we made some mistakes, and hopefully dating, not specific dates, but setting possible dates. But we did not make mistakes in basic doctrine. That's the big thing. Even Paul thought Christ would come in his lifetime. Remember the way he worded some of these prophecies in First Thessalonians. Anyway, so the hour is at hand. It is high time. Our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. You better believe it. The night is far spent. Things are getting bad. People's businesses are going broke. Farms are having to shut down. No rain. All kinds of things are beginning to happen. Big time. And they're going to continue to happen. You say, are they going to go straight down like over a cliff? No. We had a little rain, and then we'll have some more drought, and then maybe there'll be a little respite. Oh, well, it's going to be all over. No, it's not going to be all over. Then it'll go down again, and then a little respite, then down again. 
Same thing with our nation until we're taken into a place of slavery. And God says that very clearly. And God's Word stands firm. And these things will happen. And they have always happened, just like God said. So the night is far spent. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. So we've got to put on that armor, brethren, and walk with God and do the work of God. We are the few among the very few who have that understanding and are able, because of that understanding, to do that kind of work, to preach the gospel, the good news of the coming kingdom, the government of God, to rule this entire earth and bring genuine peace and prosperity and joy, a kind of joy and peace of mind the world has never experienced to the same degree. So we have that privilege and we have that responsibility. We're near the end, and we're going to need faith and courage, as I've said, to do the job. Again, I've always remembered Mr. Armstrong's faith and courage and the example of courage that he set. And I hope all of you will go back as you have opportunity and read his autobiography, especially Volume 1. He mentions me five or six times in Volume 2, but that's too bad. That's not the best volume. Volume 1 is the best volume because that's the one he wrote out every word by himself, not dictating it to someone else or whatever, and where he had time to fully spell out what God was doing in building the work. Read that. It's a marvelous example of giving understanding and faith and courage and so on. I'll always remember when Mr. Dick Armstrong was killed in this terrible auto accident on the baptizing tour in July, late July 1958. And I happened to be, and I was close to Mr. Armstrong, as I said, I happened to be sitting right across from him, literally about four or five feet right in front of his face. He had this woman's bureau, as he used to tell some of you older brethren, instead of a desk, because he had this little thin office up in a little penthouse. It's not a big fancy penthouse, a little tiny penthouse over the library building. And he had his desk there, and I was sitting right across from him when the call came from this minister who had driven the car. And he was crying. The minister was, and he'd had his arm broken or something, but he said, Mr. Armstrong, he said, Dick's just been crushed, and he's in danger of death. And I remember Mr. Armstrong's face turned pale because, as he said so many times, Dick's, the day of Dick's birth was the happiest day of his life. And he probably shouldn't have said it, but he let people know Dick was his favorite child. There's no question about that. And God took him and allowed him to die at any rate. And boy, that hit Mr. Armstrong. But he thought and tried to gain his composure, and I could see him gritting his jaw. And, and then he said, well, later on after the man got off, he said, Rod, we've got to carry on the work. He said, you stay here and you run, th- run things here. And he said, Ted's back in the campaign in, in Springfield, and I'm, he's going to have to carry on. And, and Norman will drive me up, and you and Herman get out the magazines, and you run the work overall till I'm back. And he had me do that because I was beginning to do that anyway and was soon made second vice president. But he, he then he called and he tried to, to rent a plane. He couldn't get a plane that quickly. And so he finally decided, and I said that Norman Smith would drive him up. And they went up to San, to, uh, uh, San Luis Obispo, to that area, and where Dick had had this crush. His whole pelvis was just crushed. It took him about a week to die. But Mr. Armstrong, I could see the fight in that man. We are going to carry on the work even then. Years later, Mr. Armstrong had several of us. I think Mr. Partin was there too when Mrs. Armstrong was dying and had us right up in the room where she was dying. And he knew she was dying. I think you were there, weren't you, and, and at that occasion. And uh, it was a sad thing. And finally, she, she, uh, just before she died, I mean just minutes before she died, she says, well, I'm going, fellas. But he said, that's not, she said, that's not the important thing. She said, you go on and finish the work. 
That's what she told us to do. You go on and finish the work. And then she died, and we had Mr. Dr. Parrish, our medical doctor at Big Sandy, who was in the church. We didn't have one in Pasadena in the church, and he was there. And when she died, the breath went out, and then Dr. Parrish leaped on her, and he had this funnel thing, and I, I wasn't thinking clearly, and I'm not a medic, but he leaped on top of her and started going like that, and I, I started, I thought, grab that man, he's hurting Mr. Armstrong, Mrs. Armstrong. You know, I made my first reaction. I thought, no, he's trying to get her breathing. He's trying to get her breathing. But he couldn't do that. And she was gone. But she said, you go on and finish the work. Now, that's the kind of work I grew up in. And I hope that's the kind of work some of you will grow up in, to have that zeal to get the message of the kingdom of God around this world while we have life and breath, while we have the opportunity. And God has called us and given us that knowledge. And unto whom much is given of him shall much be required. So we do need to understand. Turn back to Joshua, brethren, the book of Joshua, and notice here what God says through his servant Moses. And I guess God was speaking here directly in this place. He said in Joshua 1, the eternal spoke to Joshua, verse 1, and in verse 5, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and of good courage. And you young men out there, be strong and of good courage. A minister doesn't need to be a sissy. A minister has to have strength, because some of us are going to be beaten up and thrown in jail and killed. I've been threatened again and again with guns and rocks and so on, where they pointed and literally threw rocks and all that type of thing. And I told you some of those stories. It's going to be worse before it gets better, I'll tell you that. For to this people you shall divide as an inheritance the land which I swore to their fathers. Only be strong and very courageous that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn aside from it to the right hand or to the left. He says in verse 9, Have not I commanded you? Be strong, he repeats, and of good courage. Do not be afraid nor be dismayed, for the eternal God uh, is with you wherever you go. And brethren, God will be with us if we are his servants. And we are his servants. Every hair of our head is numbered if we walk with God. And he will guide us. He will lead us. He will bring us into his everlasting kingdom. There's no way that won't happen if we walk with God. You say some of you will be killed first. Yes. But you'll be living throughout all eternity afterward. And that's the thing you better think about, how real that is. We're in that time. Back in Mark chapter 16, if you turn there, Mark chapter 16 in your New Testament now, the last chapter of Mark, after Jesus' resurrection, verse 18, Mark 16, 14, I mean, afterward he appeared to the eleven, the eleven apostles after Judas had left, as they sat at the table, and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart. Even the ones he was right with all the time, they had a hard time believing this is really it. He rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go unto all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That's the job we have, to preach the good news of the coming kingdom of God and the true name of Jesus Christ, as the early church did. The name meaning everything Christ stood for, his way of life, his office everything. And he said, uh, he who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned, or as the Greek word may be translated, judged. They're not all condemned if God hasn't called them yet. If they understand, they could be condemned. So we better realize whatever God expects of us and the knowledge he's given us. Back in Matthew 10, if you turn there with me, brethren, 
turn back to Matthew chapter 10 now, and beginning in verse, uh, I want to begin in verse uh, 16 here. Behold, I send out you out as sheep, he told his apostles, in the midst of wolves. That's what he's doing with us. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. You will be brought uh, before governors and kings for uh, my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. Don't worry what you're to say or speak. The Holy Spirit will put it in your mind what you shall speak at that time. Now, brother will deliver up brother to death. It's not all going to be fun stuff. People in your own family may betray you. They'll turn aside somehow. And father, a child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. It's amazing what the human mind can do. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. That's what Jesus said. He said that. And he's talking about us today just as much as back there. You will be hated, but he who endures to the end will be saved. That's one of the indications. This is talking about the very end, not just back then. But when this, they persecute you in this city, flee to another. For surely I say to you, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. And he wasn't talking about just his coming to those cities. You can see that. He was talking about his second coming. We will reach a lot of the major cities and vast numbers of people through television, radio, the printing press. But we won't reach them all because God is not trying to save the world at this time. If God were trying to do that, he would do it. His name is El Shaddai, God Almighty. He's blessed us by giving us this tremendous opportunity to help be the advance guard, the people that give the warning to those who are willing to seek, the willing to listen, and in the meantime preparing us to be those kings and priests to rule under Christ into Mars' world. Turn back then, if you would, to uh, the uh, place we were before, Revelation chapter 3. Revelation 3, I finished at verse 10 here in this prophecy. He says, because you've kept my command to persevere, he tells us, the Philadelphia remnant, I will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I come quickly. And brethren, he is coming quickly on us. I tell you before Jesus Christ and in his name, he is coming quickly. I come quickly. Hold fast that you have, that no man take your crown. Don't get upset by some little stupid stuff. So many people who've left us even in recent years have had no real reason for it at all. No reason. They just go out because they want to do their thing. God help you not to do that. If this is the church of the living God, you are going to be blessed forever and ever and ever by getting involved, by getting behind it, by putting your heart in it, by growing in grace and in knowledge and having Christ live His life in you and producing fruit and having helping us have indirectly your part, having an impact on this world out there laying up fruit in heaven. So let's all try to do that and understand. Hold fast. He who overcomes, you can't just sit there, you've got to grow. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. A special name, he says then, and my new name. And I will write on him my new name. And he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit, this is God's Spirit speaking to the churches. He's giving us this opportunity, this warning. And so, brethren, we are the remnant of the Philadelphia Church of God. We're involved in the greatest crusade in modern times, if you understand it. It's not that big yet, I know that, but as we go on, it will be. 
It will be the most important activity on the face of the earth because it will be preaching the full truth of God and the whole purpose of human existence of the world with increasing power. And there's nothing more important than that, absolutely nothing. Some people might say, wouldn't you trade places with Bill Gates if you could have had 50 or $60 billion, billion with a B? No, I would not. I mean it before God, and those of us who know me know that. I wouldn't even begin to start to commence prices with him. His money can't help him at all. In a few years, it's all going to be gone. He may be screaming in terror as disease epidemics, drought, famine, and then finally attacks come and, and maybe bombs, atomic bombs, chemical warfare. And you and I, if we're watching and praying, and if God has not chosen to let a few of us go to sleep ahead of time to take us away from the face of evil, you and I will be taken to a place of safety. And God promises that. Our children, our grandchildren, our loved ones, if they're with us, can be taken to a place of safety and protected by God Almighty. And we will then be in God's kingdom and God's family forever. And that's the big picture. Turn back now to Hebrews, if you would. The book of Hebrews and something I preached on here recently I want to use again because I haven't talked about this very much, but it just hit me a few months ago, harder than ever, one of my favorite scriptures, but talking about the tests and how God rebukes and chastens every son He loves, and He tests us. He works with us throughout our lives. And finally, He says down in verse 18 to the brethren, the original Christians, the Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12, Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 18, For you have not come to the mountain and may be touched that burn with fire and blackness and darkness and tempest, You haven't come to Mount Sinai. That's not the point for us today. And the sound of a trumpet and the words so that those who heard it begged that the word not be spoken to them anymore because God's voice sounded like thunder, as you know, for they could not endure what was commanded. And if a beast so much as touches the mountain, it'll be stoned or thrust through, they heard. And they were scared. They had seen what God was doing. And so terrifying was the sight that even Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling, but you... You and I, brethren, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the spiritual temple that God is building today, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. Is your name registered in heaven? I hope that it is. Be sure it is. To God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. Brethren, if we walk with God if we talk with God, if we drink into this Word and feed upon it and pray on our knees and meditate and then yield to God so that we're in a spirit of prayer and having that communion with God all the time, we will be hand in hand with Christ and walk with Him right over into eternity. And we will be having fellowship regularly, fellowship with God and with Christ. And they will be very, very real to us. And then through all eternity, we will be able to fellowship with the Spirit's of just men, using the generic term, humans, men and women, now spirit, the spirits of just men made perfect, will be able to interact with Abraham, will be able to talk to David and say, well, David, how was it? We'll interact with those men and women of faith down through the years, the people that had understanding and the people that also who had to exercise in their time faith and courage to obey the God of Israel, the God of the Bible, the God that gives us life and breath, the God that is now beginning to intervene in human affairs more powerfully than any time in human history. So let's understand Then we can be fellowshipping with God and with Christ and with the spirits of just men made perfect throughout all eternity. 
world without end. That's why God has called you now.